0: If you were in business and you missed your sales target for eight years in a row, you'd probably be out. Uh, (laughs) So I'm still in my job. So
1: as crypto was collapsing, and FTX especially was going down, I found this really funny quote, although it wasn't intended to be funny. JP Morgan said, all of the recent collapses have been from centralized players and not from decentralized protocols. It reminded me of an exchange that I had with the official Socialist Party. I know you must be jealous. I have touched <laughs> I have touched the hand of God uh, and interacted with the Socialist Party on Twitter. The gist of it is, real communism has never been tried, which is exactly what, J.P. Morgan saying, real crypto has never been tried. All these other players, they're all centralized. They're not decentralized, like this idyllic vision that everyone's been selling you. So uh, with the Socialist Party, it was funny. Let me read you the the quote. State capitalism is what the Soviet Union, et cetera, had, not communism. Communism means a class-free society where the people, not an elite, collectively own and control the means of production. To claim that's what the Soviet Union had is to make crap up. And then they posted this communism for dummies. And by the way, communism is for dummies. I came from a communist country. And so I responded to them. I said, then who's had communism as you define it? And they responded to me, It is the post-capitalist replacement for when outdated global capitalism is eventually abandoned. Communism cannot begin until capitalism has ended. So I'm like, so it's all theoretical then? We have to end the thing that allows us to tweet freely from the comfort of our heated homes, uh, stocked fridges. For the promise of something for which you have no examples of success. And they're like, putting someone on the moon was theoretical until lots of people worked together to make it happen. And I'm like, that had a lot of science behind it and plenty of explosions along the way. Why don't you test your theories first in a commune, a city, state, etc. When you have it figured out, let us know. Not interested in a pilot experiment. Anyway, so uh, they didn't respond to that (laughs) because it's so obvious that this is not how the world works. And the crypto people are cut from the same cheesecloth. And I mentioned in the episode that, yeah, anyone who's a great player at any game Will conquer whatever the new game is. So you build me decentralization, you build me crypto, you build me socialism, and I will find you a person who's great at capitalism and they're still gonna be great at those other games. It's just like video games, no different. What's funny is the people typically preaching revolution are the ones who are least prepared to survive it. You know, you see these paunchy socialists, and what do you think you're good for? Even if you help facilitate some revolution, you don't think you you'll be eaten up by whatever the new machine is and whoever's running it. Same thing here with crypto. And and I thought about how interesting the cycles have been with both crypto and socialism. They actually share a lot in common. First, they're both interesting ideologies, they're selling a dream that someday you don't need to have these intermediaries, you don't need to have these untrusted uh, banks, you don't need to pay all these high fees, everything is going to be so amazing and so decentralized, it's just peer-to-peer, and you control your own money, that's great. They also attract a lot of smart, passionate disciples, because with crypto, it is infinite, it's digital. It's got code. It's got uh, math. It's got finance. It's got all this stuff that, that is a magnet for smart people. And same thing with socialism and these other ideologies. They are magnets. There's a whole lore behind them. It's like, oh, look at all this writing and Marx and and all these philosophers. Also, what they share in common is they're at odds with human nature. People are greedy. Some are talented. Some are not very talented. Some work very hard. Others don't work hard. Most have very different goals and they have different priorities. Some see success as purely quantitative and about physical things. Other people see it as uh, some sort of artistic expression. So you see a wide spectrum across all of these variables. And capitalism has its way of rewarding those things and maybe punishing some others. Uh, Yeah, maybe you can say those rules aren't fair, or maybe it should be rewarding some other characteristics and not just who makes the most money. And, And in some ways it does, but Of all the other systems, it's probably the one that's most consistent with human nature. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't augment it with uh, social programs or, or other things that show we care about our fellow human beings, but when... You look at the history of mankind and how countries became countries and how we came to live wherever we live. It's the history of conquest. It's the history of scarcity. It's the history of war, pillaging, and asserting your power over someone else. And capitalism represents that. And we've done a pretty good job, certainly not perfect, job of trimming off some of the harsh edges and making sure that we have some safety nets for people and that it's not just, hey, be subjected to the whims of the marketplace. And finally, both crypto and socialism persevere on cycles of optimism and denial. It's like, this is going to be amazing. Everything is going up. These coins are going to be worth so much. This company is great. So you create these bubbles. And it's happened a couple of times when they had uh, Mt. Gox, uh, like, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago. And they went under because that was fraud. And crypto goes through these phases. Same thing with socialism. You've got a new phase now where uh, Bernie Sanders is our democratic socialist. And he's got a vision that he says is different, but Again, (laughs) no one's showing you any examples of whatever that is in practice. And denial, because you, you go to the socialist party and you say, hey, Soviet Union didn't work out, Cuba didn't work out, North Korea didn't work out. All these places failed with socialism. And they're like, socialism has not been tried. And even now, decentralization has not been tried. The main difference between crypto and socialism is when... They become masks for power and wealth. Crypto starts out day one with an immediate direct line to profit. There's no beating around the bush. It unleashes its capitalist payload almost immediately. And you see all these grifters like Sam Bankman-Fried popping up. Socialism is indirect. Money and power arrive later on to the best players or to the insiders. And capitalism is also drifting. Capitalism is inseparable from Americanism. They are intertwined for better or worse. The problem is our capitalism is now shifting towards cronyism. And it opens the door to all these alternative ideologies, whether it's libertarian decentralization or socialism, all these things that have failed historically, people will rebrand them, they'll put a, a fancy outfit on it and say, oh, it's not a pig, it's a pig. And same thing with populism, the the Trump stuff. Yeah, people will fall for something new if the old thing is failing them. And right now. Capitalism is not doing such a great job, especially as you see all of the corruption through lobbying, you see the consolidation of corporations are doing, the stuff that's going on at Twitter where they've been banning people secretly and and shadow banning their accounts. It's just all of this subterfuge. Until it gets fixed, there will be no trust. There will be Tons of conspiracies. There will be other ideologies that people toy around with because the thing that we're in is sputtering. I think we're running out of time to fix this. It's fraying at the edges when you see January 6th or you see the BLM protests and riots. People are not all right, except the ones that are doing all right are oblivious to this, the professional class. They're doing fine. And the professional class is also what produces some of these elitist rebels, so to speak, all of the media activists and reporters who think they're fighting the good fight by not investigating certain things or making sure their team gets to score more points. They're not doing us any favors. These revolutionaries ultimately should be fighting for truth because sometimes you got to have it out. I, I did an episode, I guess it was 2017, shortly after Trump took over. I think it was called 10 Reasons You Will Agree Trump Will Make Us Great Again. And the general thesis was that he would unearth all of the things we buried under the carpet. And that's exactly what's happened. So we're still in that storming phase. And until all sides recognize that there has to be something in it for everybody, yeah, you could have an absolutist position. Oh, there should never be any billionaires. Fine. But I don't know that getting rid of them solves anything either. So to the extent that we can create win-win situations, we can arrive at a better place. I don't think... The nature of our dialogue today will get us there. How to change it? It's hard to say. I think some people are too far gone. Unfortunately, our education system has badly degraded the population. And I'm not just talking about people who barely graduated high school. I'm talking about people who graduated college and think they're smart. And meanwhile, they've outsourced all of their critical thinking to institutions that are now failing. It's obvious to say, oh, look at these dumb Trumpers climbing the gates of the Capitol. What's much harder to say is, hey, look at these people who aren't questioning Pfizer and and Big Pharma and other institutions that have proven time after time to have motives that diverge from ours. And yet, because it's a political narrative, they don't question it. I don't know how to change that. I guess maybe this is part of my way of doing it, but I'm sure there are others who uh, have better ideas. And when I do have better ideas, I'll let you know. Universities are screwing us. The government both lends money to their students to go to school, and it does not charge them taxes by allowing them to be nonprofits. If you're Harvard and you have billions of dollars in your endowment, you don't pay any taxes, and you keep raising your tuition to ungodly levels, what public service are you performing? In fact, these universities tout how exclusive they are, and they've only gotten more exclusive because more people want to get in, and their rejection rate is off the charts because they haven't increased their capacity. The U.S. government should be negotiating with them to expand and to lower prices because if they're going to be taking public funds or not paying for the public services, they should be providing a public service. One incentive would be taxation of endowments, and no one is talking about that except for me right now. I did a whole episode about this. I forget what it was called, but something about the actress who paid people off to, to send her kids to school. I'm going to do another full episode on education at some point. But for now, never forget, these schools are not acting in the best interest of the nation while simultaneously being subsidized by it. That is all we need to know. In June, I tweeted... Every home is currently worth 20 to 50% less than it was six months ago. Some, maybe more than that. If it's any consolation, and it won't be, the only reason it was ever worth that much was insanely low mortgage rates over the last 20 or so years. I wrote that uh, four months ago. Then just recently, Moody's came out with uh, this information these 183 housing markets could see home prices fall 20%. So this is me patting myself on the back. Great job, Steve. Uh, you beat Moody's to the punch by months. There is another study from Goldman Sachs. They're saying that there's going to be a almost 9% drop this year in housing GDP, which is a weird way to measure it. And then another 9.2% drop uh, in 2023, and they don't re- expect a recovery until 2024. So the, the number is a little bit different. They took a, a different methodology. The reality is payments, because of the higher rates, have gone up so much. They've gone up, I think, by 50 to 75 percent, if I remember correctly. That is a huge spike in payments uh, for the same home. So. If you want someone to buy that home, they only still have so much money, right? If they had $100,000 in their bank account before, it's probably about the same today. They're still only able to afford a certain payment. Your choice, if you're a seller, is to either lower the price, take your house off the market, or hope someone shows up who's richer than the last person. Mark Zandy, who's the chief economist at... um Moody's, he wrote, I often get asked why I expect U.S. house prices to correct down by single digits peak to trough, but not crash down more than 20%. And his basic reason is because uh, delinquency rates on loans are very low. And he thinks just overall credit quality is much higher than it was during the, the Great Recession in 2008. But saw this other statistic, which leads me to believe that he might be wrong, which wouldn't be the first time for Moody's study, showed as of June, 61% of Americans, roughly 157 million adults, live paycheck to paycheck. That means if there is some sort of downturn where people get laid off, 61% of Americans will not be able to make those payments. And depending on the overlap between that 61% and the roughly 65% that own homes, that could mean a pretty substantial uh, drop in housing values and rise in defaults. I'm hopeful we won't have to worry about this happening, but people have to increase their savings rate and maybe downgrade a little bit and try to save up and have several months of expenses saved up, which a lot of people uh, are struggling to do. I found this crazy chart. In Austin, the median home price is 4.5 times median household income. Three to five is generally considered to be healthy housing market. In San Francisco, this figure is 10 times what you earn. And the biggest reason for this is housing supply. It's so ironic that the people who never stop talking about affordable housing keep housing from being built. The worst market is Los Angeles 233 permits per 100,000 people. That's, they're at the very bottom. All the people who never shut up about affordable housing are only allowing 233 permits per 100,000 people. That's insane. And then you look at Austin, their number is 2,224. That's almost 10 times more housing being built per 100,000 people than in Los Angeles. All the places in California are in the dumps. Uh, Los Angeles, uh, San Jose, 243, San Diego, 284, New York is atrocious, 288, San Francisco, 299, East Bay, 318, Boston, 333, Uh, Miami's 413, which isn't great either. Uh, Washington, D.C., 424. You don't get into triple digits until you hit Dallas, Denver, Charlotte, Phoenix, Nashville, Austin. Notice a theme here the deregulated markets the red states are the ones that allow the most housing they have the the least red tape people are actually able to find affordable housing and companies are able to build multifamily units. They're able to build whatever is the, is demanded in that area. Whereas in these other states, they talk a good game, but at the end of the day, they're NIMBYs. They don't want anything in their backyards. Go try to build a multifamily unit in Leonardo DiCaprio's house. He's all full of great ideas for saving the planet. But at the end of the day, he's going to be on a private chartered flight. He's going to be on a yacht and he's going to do his darndest to prevent you from moving in next to him if you could afford it or uh, building some sort of multifamily unit. In fact, Mark Andreessen, famous investor who I've spoken about previously on, on another episode, he famously wrote an essay. I think it was a year ago or maybe two years ago saying it's time to build. We as a country must start building. Say yes. And everyone's like, that's amazing. We we got to start building. This is this is this is, what are we waiting for? This man who's built this incredible company Netscape and is invested in all these great uh, startups is telling us to build. Everyone was so excited. It was heartwarming. It was a rah rah moment for America. And then it came out recently that he and his wife wrote a very stern letter to their local government to stop construction on any kind of multifamily units and additional higher density housing in their area. Because, hey, you don't want to destroy the area's original charm. So go ahead and build just not in my backyard. That is a microcosm of California. That is the attitude. You say one thing, and you do something completely different and opposite. And the hypocrisy is palpable, and it's all in the numbers. I don't have to make anything up. Without inventory, there's no lower prices. It just doesn't happen, it's just math. People need to go into buildings. So if you're not making enough buildings, you're not going to have a place to put in people or they're going to bid up the price on a bunch of crappy buildings and the other people who can't afford them will be priced out. I had an interesting exchange with a right-wing economist. He accused this other guy of being a socialist. And he wrote, socialists are funny because they have all kinds of aesthetic preferences that are actually just dumb and think they correlate with objective measures of human well-being. What is he talking about? So this is what uh, this other guy wrote, Alan McLeod. Last year, more than 5% of all houses sold in the United States were flips bought to be resold. The same has been true since 2017. Meanwhile, a quarter of all single-family home sales went to landlords, aspiring Airbnb tycoons, and other types of investors in 2021. All told, nearly a third of American house sales last year went to people who had no intention of living in them. I don't think this quote is inherently socialist, nor are all investor home sales bad. It's neither one nor the other. But when those investors are foreign oligarchs, which is very common with Chinese and Russian money and all these other people, or huge investment firms with cheap government money that they can throw at buying these things. They don't even have to borrow. They can create the money because they're banks. Um, That's not capitalism either. So all of this is shaped by policy and we should optimize for owner occupancy. And so Richard uh, Hanania, who wrote the original tweet critical of this so-called socialist, he responded to me, he said, I see no reason to optimize for that over anything else. That meaning for owners occupying their own residences. And I responded with community mutual accountability and investment because bottom line is when you own your own place, you take care of it. Have you seen the way people treat their rental cars versus their homes? A guy responded to that thread. He wrote, there was a news article I had to read in English class in high school about a woman who was raped and murdered in New York city and her whole apartment building hearing what was going on, did nothing to stop it. This is rental mentality. I wouldn't say that's the norm, but realistically, if your neighbors are all strangers and you have no investment in this common well-being, no one's going to risk their life for this stranger. And and in New York, you really are risking your life. You don't know if someone has knives, guns, or if it's a gang thing, or that might be just the norm for New York. But in general... New Yorkers are largely renters, and that's why this is a problem. You create a completely different kind of environment and community when people are vested, and they stay longer, and they have kids. So our policy should err on the side of helping people, not investors buying these properties. I came across this crazy video from Fed official. Look, the Fed is a pseudo governmental organization made up of bankers, mostly who control our money supply and they control the rates that we pay. But we are also under this delusion that they know what they're doing. And this guy's speech blew my mind. The rank incompetence is unbelievable. Listen to this.
0: We've missed our inflation target to the low side based on our preferred measure of inflation since 2012. So basically what happened was we announced an inflation target in the U.S. in 2012, and I was one of the leading uh, proponents on that. Then we promptly missed it for seven years or eight years in a row. So if you were in business and you missed your sales target for eight years in a row, you'd probably be out. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I'm still in my job. So uh, uh, I think we want to conduct policy in a way that makes it so that you actually do hit the 2% inflation target, that uh, it's, it's not okay to come in too low for a lo- very long time or too high for a very long time. I mean, you really do want to hit it. And if you're going to be forgiving every year, you're going to, you, oh, you missed again, but I'm going to be uh, you know give forgiveness on that. Uh, then what happens is that you, don't, you just don't hit the target over a very long period of time. And then what happens is inflation expectations start to sink. You lose credibility. People don't really believe that that's your inflation target. All the, all the trading that goes on in financial markets starts to be based on some other expectation of inflation. So uh, there's a lot to be said on this. Uh, it's certainly not settled uh, at this point. There are a lot of technical details. And uh, we'll have to see how the debate evolves, uh, evolves going forward. This is not done by any central bank uh, in the world. So the U.S. would be the first. Um, It probably is the kind of thing we'd like to see someone else try it uh,
1: first instead of the U.S. Think about the insanity of what he just said. He was a proponent of an inflation target in 2012. And we missed it for seven or eight years in a row. If you were in business and you missed your sales target for eight years in a row, you'd probably be out. So I'm still at my job. He's laughing about it. These are goons and buffoons who know that eventually they're going to be employed by the industry they service, which is the banking industry. So this guy is just laughing. He's, he's talking to a bunch of bankers. and He's like, hey, I missed the target. You know, things happen. You, you kind of you do your best. You just do your best. And I did my best. It wasn't that good. And I'm still here. The guy is saying it with a smile on his face. And listen to what he laughs about at the very end. He says, this is not done by any central bank in the world. So the U.S. would be first. It probably is the kind of thing we'd like to see someone else try first instead of the U.S. He's saying that we're experimenting on all of you. We don't know what we're doing. Hey, would be nice if somebody else tried this crazy nonsense that we're about to do. The level of manipulation and the level of incompetence is mind-numbing. So we're walking around thinking, oh, there's this entity that's going to take care of rates and and work on inflation and they have this 2% target and they're going to hit this target. They cannot, they, they can't hit that target any more than a monkey with a gun can hit a target. <laughs> so they are the monkey with a gun. It is mind-blowing what goes on and who we trust. This is why less is more. Have government do less. Give them less money. Trust People, just give us the facts. We will figure it out. We will self-organize. The more you trust someone to do the right thing, they will do the right thing. But if you treat them like babies and you try to over-engineer things, you create all kinds of unintended consequences and people become like dumb babies. They don't even try to fix anything on their own. They just outsource it to some other entity that's clearly incompetent, like government. Some people have been wondering, well, Steve, Who would you blame for this crypto crash? Not just FTX, just all of this stuff that's gone on and what looks like a Ponzi scheme. Well, I think 30% of the blame goes to the direct beneficiaries. People are selling these garbage coins and making these coins. It's it's all nonsense. And companies that are promising you insane rates, like, oh, we're going to give you a 9% return on this token we made up five minutes ago. So all these scammers like Celsius and and all these NFT wash traders, so NFTs were, you know, for five minutes, those pictures you'd sell to each other. (laughs) Well, a lot of those uh, purchases were fraudulent. They were buying them from themselves to pump up the price to make it look like there's a real market and there wasn't. That's why it's collapsed by over 90% since then.
2: Digital artist Michael Winkleman, otherwise known as Beeple, began a challenge in 2007 where he would create one piece of artwork every single day and continue to do so throughout the years. It was known as his Everyday's Collection. It was reportedly around October of 2020 when Beeple was put in touch with an anonymous NFT artist called Pac, and Pac informed Beeple about the world of NFTs. Only a few months later, he would end up auctioning a piece of artwork that contained a collage of the first 5,000. Images of the Everyday series, titled "Everyday's the First Five Thousand Days," sixty-nine point three million dollars was how much it sold for in the Ether cryptocurrency. One of the largest sales in digital art history. The very sale that sent the search term NFT skyrocketing. So now the question becomes, who decided to make that purchase?
0: So you purchased a collection of five thousand pieces of digital art. that anyone can easily see online for $69 million. Why did you do that?
2: MetaCoven, or as they were later revealed to be, Vignesh Sundaresan, a crypto entrepreneur who had recently co-founded a crypto investment firm with his business partner called MetaPurse. Only a few months before this big $69 million purchase, Meta Kovin and his business partner had already bought another collection of NFTs from Beeple for over $2.2 million. They actually wrote a blog post about their purchase, alluding to the fact that this was only part of a much bigger project that they had in mind that will quote, flip the art world status quo on its head. And what was that project that they were talking about? the B20 token coin. They were going to bundle their purchases of Beeple's NFT's collection and put it in a virtual museum where those who purchased the B20 token coin could access and view the artwork. Owning the B20 token was supposed to represent a type of fractional ownership in the virtual museum and the contents inside of it. Here's the thing. Metacoven and his business partner conveniently owned 59% of the total supply of B20 tokens. Beeple was also given 2% of that supply. Beeple and Metacoven already had a working relationship before the big Everydays 5000 sale. When that sale happened and the media frenzy ensued, the B20 token rose in value to $23 as more people began obviously looking into who Metakoven was. People have accused that sale of essentially being a giant marketing stunt to increase the value of the B20. The B20 token has fallen over 99% in value since its all-time high. Despite all of this, Metakovin's sales sent headlines skyrocketing. Suddenly, NFTs were being created out of internet memes or, or anything really that was culturally relevant to the internet.
1: That is from a great documentary called The Great Crypto Scam. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Definitely check it out. And it goes really deep towards the end on... Andreessen Horowitz and some of the other VCs that have been directly benefiting from the sale of crypto shows how they've applied VC principles in terms of pumping and dumping companies to pumping and dumping coins, which can be done much, much faster. It's really devious and well covered in this documentary. The next 30% of blame I'm going to give to the legitimizers, all of the people uh, like this Anthony Pompiliano guy and all these so-called experts and all the paid shills like Kevin O'Leary. He was paid $15 million to shill for FTX. And even after they collapsed and after Sam Bankman-Fried was on uh, that New York Times conference, he was like, oh, I I believe him. (laughs) I don't have the exact quote in front of me. All these people were pumping this decentralized future, meanwhile, profiting from players who were not even remotely decentralized. It was just a joke. It was a scam. The next 30%, I would say, goes to these clueless, greedy investors. At the end of the day, you're responsible for your own money. Yeah, you got taken. It sucks. And these companies were fraudulent. They weren't regulated. And... You could have known that, you could have educated yourself more, you could have formed your own opinion, or maybe you're not that smart. Ultimately, you bear the blame, and maybe not the majority of the blame, but a good amount. And I would hope a lot of these people internalize it and learn from it. I only blame clueless, greedy celebrities at a 10% rate. The reason is very simple. Learning not to take financial advice from celebrities on TV is a very important life lesson. So all of these celebrities, we're teaching you a life lesson, even though it's an unpleasant one. So that's my blame breakdown. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Share it with others. Tell a friend. Support the show on patreon.com forward slash McFuture. There will be bonuses there. And I will see you next week on the McFuture. McFuture. College loan forgiveness. I've written articles about it, and I know a lot of people have beaten this one up, but there are a couple of things I I want to highlight. First of all, high level. I don't think this is good policy because it doesn't solve the problem. The reason loan levels are as obscene as they are is uh, the government in 2005 made it illegal to default on college debt. So prices spiked because now the government's providing unlimited amounts of money and the schools know that these people will have to pay no matter what. Once uh, things got out of control, the federal government took over the loan program. So now uh, they're trying to buy votes because the base of the Democratic Party are educated elites. Only 30 percent of Americans graduate college. So the 70% is subsidizing the 30%, which is exactly what we're taught not to do in economics, which is make things regressive, meaning the poor subsidize the rich. just like the mortgage deduction, same thing. The ones who can afford to buy a house are being subsidized by the poor who are uh, paying rent. I I think this is really bad policy. Healthcare, education, homelessness, uh, clean water, all kinds of things that would be better uses of these funds than giving a break to people who will ultimately earn more than the average american because the college degree holders earn more why subsidize them there's no reason to do it especially if you're never going to address the underlying problem which is the skyrocketing cost of college which the government enabled with unlimited lending it's it's a bizarre thing to do other than as a political maneuver. And uh, I don't think the government should be in the lending business. I do think it should encourage education.